News. Talk. Passion. The Rick Peterson Show. Hear Rick live. Weekdays, noon to 1 on CJAD 800. The many voices that bring it up and many opinions, of course, that make up that voice of Montreal. That should be a very important thing to point out, too. And that includes yours and why we begin the program with a free-for-all. And a varied opinion indeed. Coming up uh, today's edition, John Moore. Uh, CJAD 800 contributor, News Talk 1010 Toronto host, and uh, and you can read him every now and then in the National Post, and I'll get to that in just a moment, as you can today. Journal de Montréal columnist and blogger Lise Ravery is in studio, too, with uh, her Harley helmet uh, down here on the... <laughs> <laughs> on the table, and uh, we've made her run up the stairs. She's a little breathless, but uh, she's the hog is parked, and she's ready to uh, the bike. That is, please <laughs> is ready to. Jeez, I'll get myself in oh, trouble. That John, you could so jump in at any time now no, if you'd no, like. No, I'm enjoying the show. <laughs> Let's talk about being Canadian and what we seem to want to do to our heroes. This has really got my goat. Uh, apparently, someone black. Uh, what is it? Blacklock reporter. Someone's done some digging. Access to information in Ottawa. And uh, they have obtained documents that show that uh, that there was some collaboration between the CBC and all of the social networking going on from Chris Hadfield's space flight, and uh, go as far as to uh, suggest that he had a ghostwriter and his brother or his brother, his son, who was instrumental in helping him put all of this stuff together when he was doing this. Of course, takes great offense to it, pointing out. And I read an awful lot of these uh, posts. Uh, that when he did, in fact, write for his dad, he said he was, and I remember that. And I just find this a whole bunch of stuff about nothing and taking a shot at a hero. What do you think, Lise? Oh, I'm with you totally on this. I mean, did anyone really think, I mean, honestly, that the guy could be the commander of the space shuttle and do all of this side stuff? I mean, this is ridiculous. It was obvious, but it doesn't take anything away from Chris Hadfield. I interviewed him once many years ago before he was famous and when he first went to uh, to Houston. And, I mean, that guy is a star. Has always been a star. He was probably a star when he was five years old. And there we are trying to... I just don't get this one. It no. makes me mad. And, and I'll, go, go. I'll go even further, though, and suggest that he's more than capable of the multitasking involved in that. Mm-hmm. The guy is very bright, very oh, smart. Oh, is he ever? His oh. son got him... And, you know, the th- to think that he couldn't do an awful lot of this is one thing. The other thing, John, that you'd have to be completely naive to think that the space agency... I'd be disappointed if they weren't thinking of ways to help promote because, you know, promotion while you're up there is what uh, keeps taxpayers interested in funding this thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, yeah, and I just don't see a scandal here either. I mean, what he's done is he's nitpicking. Everybody knew that there were aspects that were being shaped. I mean, he he almost suggests in his coverage that even the collaboration with Ed Robertson was not really his uniquely because why? Ed Robertson worked on it. Um you know, I, I'm like Lee's actually. I had the uh, the chance to interview him three times before he took off, and the reason I did it was because I just saw enough about Chris Hadfield to understand that this guy is special. There right. is something fresh and unique, and uh, you know, not to diss other astronauts, but they can be kind of like engineers, which is a diss, I guess, against engineers. Um, but I mean, y- you can recognize authenticity on Twitter. And every time I read one of those messages, I could tell it was in his voice. And if it wasn't, I knew that he'd right. been, you know, told, can you plug this? Can you do that? Can you get people interested in this aspect today? So it's just, there's nothing here. 
And he would, and, and we've all met him enough to know, too, that with the foresight that goes into planning any kind of mission and the leadership skills he has, that he would be thinking about, okay, while I'm up there and in command, we're going to go through St. Patrick's Day. I should take sure. something green, some deedly boppers. Let's do something about that. Yeah. Let's include the... This would have been a collaborative effort, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, and not only that, but you, Rick, and every radio show host, including me, sits down for meetings with teams of people and says, how can we give unique coverage mm -hmm. to this, that, or the other thing? Does that right. mean my show is not me exactly <laughs> that's a very good parallel yes much to do about nothing let's go yes. to what you john first of all have been writing about and then to what uh, lise has been writing about uh make russia feel the shame john writes in the national post column uh russia's anti-gay legislation is wrong the world is telling them so uh, i'm not for an olympic boycott of the sochi games athletes safety has been assured they they want to compete and Russia is not the worst offender. Iran hangs, uh, Iran rather hangs gays, as you point out too in your in your uh, your writing, John. Uh, but I also see today that uh, the Change.org petition is uh, out with an update calling uh, on the 2014 Sochi Winter Games to be relocated to Vancouver. They've got 40,000 signatures. I don't think that's going to be enough. Sponsored to by done. George Takai, though. you got to love that. Yes, <laughs> yes. There are many aspects about this, but I, I don't know that a boycott is going to work. No, I would not go for a boycott. The reason I wrote the column is this. I, I think a short, sharp rebuke may be enough to get Russia to back down. It's just, it was a foolish thing. And I guess what I find most offensive, and I say in the article, listen, I know there are much worse human rights offenders. And I kind of hate that idea that if you point to one human rights offender, people say, well, what about Iran? Russia's backsliding. Russia is a progressive country, in theory anyway. I mean, they're kind of thuggish. So... If you step back on human rights, for me, that would be like if South Africa went back to apartheid or the United States enacted some form of legislation that restricted people's rights. So I think if we can make them feel the humiliation, if a Russian businessman, every time he sets foot outside his borders, gets the evil eye from people because he's from Russia, then that's enough for that guy to go to Putin and say, listen, why, you know, this is not worth it. Get off it. I don't know. Putin doesn't look like the kind of guy that changes his mind. What do you think? I don't think he's going to change his mind, but I agree. This is definitely backsliding, and and um, definitely the world has to, the civilized world has to say something. However, a boycott, I don't think, is is the right way to go about this. And I was listening the other night on CNN, a couple of um, uh, gay athletes who were saying, well, we want to go, and mm -hmm. we want to win, because we want to show them. A little bit like Jesse Owens. I mean, it's not the same thing, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like, we're not subhuman. We are good athletes. It doesn't matter what our orientation is. We'll go and compete and put in, take that. Well, yeah, and, yeah, and if I can just quickly mention, there's the famous story, I think it was King Gustav, and it's actually apocryphal, but it's a great story, the King of Sweden, and uh, when the Germans, when the Nazis came in, he said, hey, you know, Jews are going to have to wear a star, so the king put a star on. So <laughs> yeah. if everybody shows up at the games and says, you know, we're all a little gay, mm -hmm. uh, it's just going to drive Putin nuts. But this is where the brand, and this is where the Olympic thing, the brand disappoints me, is that A, they could cover this off when they do their selection and put it in the rules that uh, you know certain human rights human rights have to be paid attention to don't even bother to bid uh, otherwise they don't uh, it, it, it's just appalling that they don't and then they leave and they and they will take if the athletes wanted to make an issue out of this upon winning their medals mm. 
They cannot because the brand prevents them from doing that. They may be sent home for that. The Olympics themselves as a brand need to do more. They oh. need to be shamed as well, don't they, oh, John? Yeah, let's, oh, yes, go on, well, John. Yes, but I, I have this uh, ability to partition everything in my brain, and I guess that's because I was taught by Jesuits. The Olympics kind of exist in, a, in an almost diplomatic space that is immune from the countries that they are in, or that's the theory right. anyway. And the idea is maybe you can have a civilizing force and an internationalizing force in whatever country you go to. And there's arguments to be made that that worked to a certain degree in China. And, and China is still a horrible human rights offender. But all of a sudden, they really felt the need to impress the world. So, um, I, you know, that's why I think the Olympics soft pedals on this stuff. I just want to say uh, I haven't gotten over the fact that the Olympic organizers at the last Olympics, uh, Summer Olympics in London, uh, decided not to acknowledge the Munich massacre which was the 50th anniversary mm -hmm. and and the reasoning was just horrendous and you say they yes they are kind of a, a unique diplomatic kind of status but i think they really view themselves as above and that's the part that bothers me right i think it's the 40th anniversary 40th i'm right. sorry yes west yes john anything more you want to add to that because i'm going to break for traffic and go back with some more yeah no i'm good i i, I just um I, I thought it was, I, I wrote the piece and it was called, it's called a pop in the business, right? Where you just write a very short, it was actually 400 words. I'm the first guy whose editor ever had to add something to his copy. Um, <laughs> but the idea was just to get the message out there, you know, make the headline, make Russia feel the shame and then maybe they'll back off. It's what, it's what worked in South Africa. South Africans were ashamed of their country and they could not show their faces to the world anymore. All right. And we're going to move on to what Lise has written about the monarchy today. And I think you'll be interested in that in the Journal de Montréal. And of course, our free for all discussion will move forward. We've got some other topics we'll bring up as well. And our free-for-all continues to get things started with uh, John Moore uh, with us today, CJAD 800 contributor, News Talk 1010 Toronto host. And, of course, uh, in the National Post again today. Uh, what do you call again with a pop? Something yeah. that's not 800 words. It's half of that, 400 words. And in the Journal de Montréal, columnist and blogger Lise Ravery is with us today. And she's writing, uh, having a monarch is not all that bad. Uh, Quebec is adamant in its cultural and historical symbols like the crucifix, uh, inexplicably Duplessis in the National Assembly, but uh, loves denigrating uh, those of others. But uh, Lee's does not. Uh, when it comes to the Queen, who does not govern, she points out, uh, it's okay. Tell, tell me about your thinking here. Well, first of all, for you know, the sake of transparency, uh, I hold a British passport, therefore I am also not just Canadian. I didn't know that. Oh, yes, 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 of course, mm. yes. Wow. Oh, yes. I used to live there. I, I was even able to speak <laughs> the way they do. But I came back here and off it went. So, anyway. Suddenly back to your roots. Yes, okay. suddenly back. So, this is my thinking. And, and obviously, I understand why people would be not in agreement, especially in Quebec, that having the Queen of England as your head of state is necessarily what we would do if we had the choice. Right. Right. But if you look at the most, some of them, and a lot of the most progressive countries in the world today, Sweden, Denmark, uh, Spain, Britain, of course, Australia, New Zealand, what do they have in common? They're run by a constitutional monarchy. There's, and we're not talking about monarchies in the Gulf here where, you know, right. <laughs> if you don't like the king, it's off with your head. We're talking about monarchs who don't really rule, they don't rule at all, but they represent the state and its values. One of the advantages of having this as a system is, for example, because it's, you know, handed down from generation to generation, is you never have a politician as a head of state. Think about that. 
that in itself to me, it says, and I'm I'm, jo- I'm joking, but it's it's not really funny. It's uh-huh. it, it it is above politics in a mon- in a constitutional monarchy. Another aspect, the the armies do not report to the government. They report to the head of state. And the importance of this was shown in, in Spain when shortly after Franco died and, and, the, and the king came back, uh, the uh, army officers, some army officers, tried to stage a coup. They entered the parliament in Madrid with shooting, you know, left, right, and center. And the king, they thought, was going to go with them uh, because it was the army. But he put on his best dress uniform, went on national television, and huh. ordered the generals to go back to their barracks. To me, that saved democracy in Spain. And it's, it is a strong symbol of continuity, of history, of values in a world where we seem to be lacking some of this. It's, Here's it's, my tirade for the month. Well, I don't know, but that's, it's interesting. As someone who has you know, had contracted work with the military, and I have, uh, it's always blown my mind that the contract is always made out to, it's between me and the queen, Of course. John. Really? Yes. Well, and, 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 you know, I have my signature on it. At the very end, sure enough, there's the Queen's. The Queen is signing your contract? Well, it's one of those digital things. One of those machines. Yes. Here's the deal. Uh, the reason the King of Spain represents continuity for Spain is because he's Spanish. And I know you can tell me a million times that the Queen is the Queen of Canada, but I ain't buying. Uh, I think this should be our last monarch. I would. Uh, I, I, I get the continuity and the notion of the crown and somebody who's above things, and I actually think that in the prorogation crisis that it was very interesting and historic what the governor general did. But I just, I, I am not going to bow to Charles. I can't do it. Yeah, I, 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 I can understand that. Maybe it's a case of holding our noses for a little while, and then, and then William will, will, will come around. But yeah. I agree about Canada. But the Queen but has I been think... this lifetime of service, and by the sheer virtue that she is the daughter of a king who got them through the Second World War, and that she was part of that family, I and think you know, she, she is an admirable woman. Talk about a sense of duty. I just I love the fact that Lee's from here in the journal is arguing for the monarchy and from Toronto. This, well, I, I, I agree. The <laughs> monarchy, Vilaine. yes. And I understand why people think it's not really the thing for Canada. But as an institution, <laughs> as a concept, it's not the antiquated idea that right. we think it is. All right. One, a quick one before we go. And, and maybe I should have started if I wanted to shebang with this one. But <laughs> Ottawa dropped Christmas from the annual December Lighting Festival. They spent 69 grand analyzing... Uh, whether or not it should include the name Christmas, here we go. Uh, it, holiday or winter may be sufficient, but because of the possible backlash over dropping that, they need to study that now and what spend more tax money. Shouldn't they just have a Christmas light show? John? Well, I just want to note that this is the earliest start to this alleged and preposterous war on Christmas. And by that, I mean the right-wing notion that there actually is a war on Christmas. Bill O'Reilly will bloviate about this forever. The reason they they went for that report was, it's a bomb. Nobody goes. It doesn't work. So when they came back with a list of ways to gussy it up, one of them was maybe we should call it by another name. And that, of course, is going to be spun by the people who insist that people with hijabs are trying to bring us to our knees. Uh, That'll be spun into another attack on our cultural values. If it was such a cultural value, maybe more than 7,000 people would go to it. Please, I'll give you the last word on it. I think that's pretty much to the point. (laughs) However, I'm a traditionalist, and I would say keep Christmas. And I don't think changing the name to Winter or Flake is going to change anything. And whether this light show, as John points out, no one comes to it anyway, calling it something else isn't going to change that. No. John, thank you. Okay. And again, you can read him in uh, in the National Post today. 
on shaming Russia, make Russia feel the shame. And Lise Ravary, the Journal de Montréal today, on uh, how she feels about the monarchy. And uh, now you can get back on your Harley and drive out into the nice crisp air today and hopefully avoid all the construction zones. Yes, the, the cones. Yeesh. The darn cones. Yeah. The cones. You held her up today. The cones. You're listening to the Rick Peterson Podcast. Hear the show live, weekdays, noon to 1, on CJAD 800. Well, as you heard in CJAD News, uh, they've well, the backhoe is out, but they still have some repairs to do on Guy Street, and uh, the big sinkhole has certainly uh, had us taking a look again at the infrastructure work that is being done. Uh, as you may have seen in a report today, the Director General finding that not only is a plan to fix our water infrastructure behind, only 20% of the work has been done, we're 11 years into this 20-year plan. It's costing $1.3 billion. And we're getting city contracts uh, going out to more firms that are supposedly on the city's blacklist because the call for tenders went out a week before the city tightened the rules. I think it's frustrating to hear this stuff as a taxpayer. And to get a better feel for exactly how far behind we are and where we're situated when it comes to spending this $1.3 billion in this 20-year plan. Veronique Fournier joins me right now, Vision Montreal City Councilor, current member of the Finance Committee. Thank you for this, Veronique. Hi. So how much work has the city actually completed so far in rehabilitating the water infrastructure? Well, as uh, the uh, Auditor General said in, the, in his last uh, report, uh, the objective was uh, reached to 26% uh, on the water infrastructure, and what's concerned on the road infrastructure, it goes uh, uh, an average of 40%. So it's well behind the objective that uh, the city has uh, planned to do. And even if the funding uh, was there, because we've created the uh, water fund to uh, uh, fund all of those uh, work at the city. Why is it behind? Well, there's a mini explanation. Uh, one, I guess, is uh, all the planification of the work. Uh, what happened? Like right now, uh, we have the, all the IMF and all the issues concerning the uh, contract. But well before it has been raised, and an issue that the city is planning works, but in the reality, they're not reaching uh, the goals uh, every year. So uh, years after years, uh, there's uh, late and work, and it just had up, and then we're, in, we're unable to reach the objective. Like for instance, the investment plan in Montreal. Montreal uh, in 2012, uh, it was not. It was around like 70 percent of the objective that has been reached. So every year, those projects are late, and then it just goes and add up and add up. And what happened is like uh, after like uh, what 10 years of a plan of a water infrastructure, well, we are well behind uh, the objective. All right. Well, what what then is? And we're speaking again to Veronique Fournier, the Vision Montreal City Councilor and current member of the Finance Committee. What's being done then about these uh, late, the tardiness? I mean, is there are there not some kind of uh, mechanisms built into this to try and keep it on time? Well, uh, the, one of the objectives this year was to get like to 90% of the investment plan. But with all the uh, contract with the IMF issues and all the collusion, there's been a lot of uh, uh, late in the, uh, the contract. But I think one of the key is that instead of tr- uh, starting the planification, for instance, at the beginning of January, then goes and call for tenders, then give the contract, then the contract, and then you have all kind of a uh, uh, step. And then it happens that uh, finally the work are done like in October and then it's too late. 
uh, we should like start well before the planification of the work and then when the city is going on the market like for the contract then we're the, at the beginning of the season if we can say that of infrastructure and work then we'll be able to plan and make the sure that we make the works on a good schedule and try to reach uh, the objective but right now uh, we're late on that and then we're late on going on the market and uh, moreover there's all the issues of the uh, IMF and uh, the firm and the contract uh, uh, issues. So, all right. Well, let's but th- let's look at the consequences then of this schedule going to hell because that's what's happening. Is that if you have twenty six percent of the water uh, work being done under the ground completed and behind, so only a quarter halfway through, and you've only got a quarter of this accomplished, and forty percent on the roads. It seems to me that roads are being repaired over problems down below that are going to have to be torn up to be fixed below. Well, uh, at least uh, there's a since few years there's a coordination between uh, what the work that is being done under the street and then the work over the street. So to make sure that we're not uh, that we're not uh, living again the, the situation of the Salara Boulevard. Remember when there been no, when the road has been like open like twice or even like third times. So at least there's a try now to uh, get those uh, on the coordination. But still, uh, even like if we've been investing like. Um, over like 200 millions a year on the water infrastructure, there's still like needs for like 400 millions. So that's a lot of money. Until now, uh, the city hasn't been able, uh, even if the fund were there, like for instance with the water fund, uh, they've not been able like to reach uh, the work and make sure that they get on time. So this is probably the main issues because every year we're just being accumulating uh, uh, late work and. Uh, wow. Also, deficit of maintenance, but deficit of uh, investment. All right. And it smells like higher taxes, too, to fix it. Well, higher tax, but already, like, the Montrealers are paying for the water fund. There's already, like, uh, the water tax on our bill. But this money is still on the the account, if we can say that, because it's not spent, it spent uh, every year. So, like, we're paying taxes, but the Montrealers right now... Uh, they're not like the city is not like uh, giving the work of the money that the Montrealers are paying. So sometimes I say, well, we should for sure ask uh, the funding. But if we ask the funding and uh, an effort for all the Montrealers, we should always be always as uh, being as a city. We should be able like to make the work on time and make sure that we're following the schedule, which is a major uh, challenge for Montreal, the infrastructure as well as road and uh, water. But we should be able like to. Uh, reach the objective that we're asking uh, the financial yes. effort to the Montrealers. Yeah, the answer to that would be yes. Veronique, thank you very much. You're welcome. You're listening to the Rick Peterson Podcast. Hear the show live, weekdays, noon to 1, on CJAD 800. Kevin O'Leary's Cold Hard Truth. And now, the Cold Hard Truth with Kevin O'Leary. Brought to you by O'Leary Mortgages. Visit O'LearyMortgages.com. Hi, Kevin O'Leary here. Well, I've got some good news, and I've got some bad news. First, the good news. The Canadian Institute of Actuaries has just released a new draft report that basically says Canadian men and women are going to last longer. That's the good news. If you're a 60-year-old woman, you're going to last another 29.4 years. If you're a 60-year-old man, you can now expect to live an additional 27.3 years. Great news, right? Well, no, there's bad news. It costs money to live longer. And those that are managing pension plans see this data and are freaking out because they don't have enough if everybody's going to live this long. This means as individual Canadians we have to take more of this responsibility onto our own shoulders. 
basically, in a nutshell, this data says you've got to save another 10% of whatever you're saving now, add 10%, just to accommodate the fact you're going to be around so much longer. Look, it's not impossible, but at the end of the day, you've got to take your own financial future into your own hands, and that means you have to save more. The good news is you're going to be around to enjoy it. The bad news is you need more money. You know, this is my whole point. In the end, it's always about the money, even when it comes to your life. That's the cold, hard truth. Till next time, Kevin O'Leary. The cold, hard Hard. truth with Kevin O'Leary. Brought to you by O'Leary Mortgages. Visit O'LearyMortgages.com. Listen to The Rick Peterson Show live weekdays noon to 1 on CJAD 800 and at CJAD.com.